How are we? Okay, good. We've got some fun to get to today. Uh, we've been going through this sermon series called When God Shows Up, so we've been trying to look for patterns, both in the Old and the New Testament, and then even today, uh, the time after Christ's ascension in the book of Acts and the epistles, and then even beyond that, uh, after the apostles had died and, and the church uh, continued to grow and expand across the whole globe, are there patterns uh, that we can recognize and then apply in our own life, both as a diagnostic to say, has God shown up in our life, and for expectation and promise. Uh, we've been looking at these patterns by looking at a passage in the Old and the New Testament, and, and this is our last week. It's our last week in this series, which is, is sad because I've loved this series. I hope you have too. So let me just recap, and actually what we're going to do is next week, because we feel like I mean, we've covered some ground. If you've been with us, you know that we've been looking at a lot of Scripture, a uh, lot of big ideas, and uh, we just feel like sometimes it's good to just sort of take a breath and breathe and have a bit of a Sabbath uh, from the normal rhythm. So next week, uh, we're doing church, but we're going to do uh, church more as a Q&A rather than uh, a regular sermon, okay? So bring your questions from this series, uh, things that you've been wondering questions that have come up in your cohorts, things that you might like to hear from my perspective, how I would answer those questions, and uh, it's going to be really fun. So just to recap where we've come from each week, we've sort of looked at a verb about what God does when he shows up, and we've looked at the resulting state uh, of that action of God. So the first week we said God makes promises, and the resulting state is we are repurposed. The second week we looked at God forgives, and the resulting state is we are reassociated, not with our sin, but with our Savior. The third week we looked at God heals, and we are renewed. We are made whole again by His power. The four, uh, fourth week uh, we said God instructs, and we are therefore retuned. The fifth week we said God sustains and feeds, and therefore we are restored. And then we looked at God adopts, and therefore we are reborn into his family. And then last week we looked at God rustles, and the resulting state is that we are reoriented. So it's been fun, and next week we'll have more time to unpack that, so come bring your questions. Uh, we do pray that everyone has a fantastic Thanksgiving week, and if you're back in town uh, before Sunday, we'd love to have you be here. We'll sing songs, we'll worship, uh, we'll have a great uh, sort of more interactive dialogue uh, from the stage to talk about these things. But, but for this last week, uh, we are going to talk about a less attractive verb, a verb that is associated with God, but that we don't quite understand what to do with it. Uh, but it is unavoidable if we just read the scriptures and we believe that they are God's communication to us. He wants us to know that when he shows up, he also brings and enacts destruction against human beings. Yikes. Why would he do this? Why does he do this? And one of the things we've hoped in this series that you'd see, because this is, this is a characteristic of God, this is a way that he acts, this is something that happens when he shows up that, that, that is hard to explain to people. And we see a lot of this in the Old Testament, don't we? And sometimes we shy away from the Old Testament and that God because it's hard to, to understand. It seems to be a God 
of destruction at times, and I hope that you've seen over the series that that's not the only thing that God is, that actually in the Old Testament we see the same God in the New Testament that shows up in the person of Jesus, but this is a tough one. Why does he come and inflict destruction? What's going on here? Is God angry? And does that anger lead to rage? Is that what's going on? Let me just read to you a description of of the way anger and rage are related. Anger and rage are related to each other in this way. There's not much of a difference. Both anger and rage are emotional outbursts. Anger is a feeling or emotion that a person has when being offended or being wronged. Rage can be considered to be an action in retaliation to the anger that a person has. Rage is a situation when a person is not able to handle their anger in a proper way. Anger is an emotion that every person comes across. It is just a feeling like happiness or sorrow. On the other hand, rage is an extreme expression of anger. So does God get angry and does God rage? Is that why we see these destructive actions of the God of the Bible? Well, the first question we have to ask and and, and hopefully answer is, does God experience emotion or is God emotionless? Now, I was, uh, this was sort of reintroduced to me as uh, an important dilemma to wrestle with uh, through a movie that I recently watched. Who's seen the movie Ad Astra? Has anybody seen Ad Astra with Brad Pitt? Thank you. That's my movie guy. Let's go. Let's go. Next time, we'll go get some movies. And this is a great movie. It's not quite what you expect. It's about space exploration in the near future. And uh, Brad Pitt is an astronaut. And I actually ended up listening to the director in a few interviews that he did because I was trying to understand what, what, everything that he was trying to portray in his picture. And one of the things that he's trying to do in this movie is to overcome what has often been a male stereotype, which is it is better to be without emotion than to be full of emotion. And oftentimes in the past, if you think of um, a Neil Armstrong, for instance, The astronaut was sort of the prototypical man's man, the great explorer, uh, without emotion. In fact, to be able to control your emotion was to be a strong man. And oftentimes this is portrayed in movies about astronauts and and just astronauts in general. And so part of uh, the director's hope in this movie was to show that that is a false paradigm, that that is not actually the fullness of what it means to be a human or human male in particular, but actually a limiting factor to the fullness thereof. And, and so I thought about that again this week. Maybe one of the reasons why we have in the past at times thought that God is without emotion is because we thought this, or, or, or actually to say it the other way, why we thought to be a man is to, to be in control of your emotion is because we thought God was without emotion But I don't think that's true. Let me show you why I think God is not without emotion. You got a copy of the scriptures? Grab it. Turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, here, if you're sitting on the end of the row, just grab a couple of them and and look down your row and see if anybody needs a Bible. 
Genesis is the first book in the Bible, so you should be able to find it. And we're looking for chapter 6. The large numbers are the chapter headings. The small numbers are the verse headings. So when I say Genesis chapter 6, you're looking for the large 6. You could also Google Genesis chapter 6 if you wanted. Here we go. Let me read this to you. Genesis 6, verse, small 5, verse 5, says this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of his thoughts, of his heart, was only evil continually. So here's the setting. Genesis 1 and 2. God has created, and creation is very good, and human beings are the pinnacle of creation, created in God's image for relationship with God. Things are so great. And then human beings decide to worship something other than God. They turn and worship themselves. They want to be the center of knowledge and moral ethic and and deciding what they should do with their lives. And this creates a rift between God and them. That's not how it was intended to be. That's Genesis 3. And from then on until Genesis 6, uh, we see things continue to deteriorate until we get here. And God says, he saw and everything was evil continually. Verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. Regretted is that His heart was sad. He was sorry. Why have I done this? Look how it turned out. Continue on with me. And it grieved him to his heart. You think this is emotion? I believe that it is. This idea of regret and grief, though it is one of sadness and sorrow, it is also one of great anger. If you look at the Hebrew word, it it has a range of meaning, and it's angry sorrow. What has become of this? What have they done to my good creation? Look at where we are. I think this is an example, and there are many examples of God appearing to be full of emotion and even the emotion of anger. So what does he say next? So the Lord said, verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But wait, (laughs) the best three letters in your Bible, wherever you see it, B-U-T. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So here's how I read this text. Now keep keep your your finger right there in Genesis, because we'll be looking at another passage. I think here and other places, it's fair to come to the conclusion that God has emotion God has emotion, even the emotion of anger. Now, remember what we said about emotion and and rage. 
The difference between God and most of us is that his emotion, his anger that he feels, should lead to what he said. What he's, so when he says, I'll blot them out, he's saying, this is how angry I am, this is what would happen if I let my emotions go, I'll blot them out from the face of the earth. But God does not decide based on emotion or his anger, he decides based on his loving plan, his covenant that he's made, and he sees Noah, one who's at least righteous enough that God can choose hope for us, and he chooses hope. So God is not emotionless, but his anger is righteous. God is not emotionless, So why don't we worry that we are causing God great emotional harm by the way that we act? He is a God of emotion. He is a God of anger. So if God is full of emotion, then this must be why he inflicts destruction in the Old Testament, right? Wrong. This is not why he inflicts destruction, though that's what we think is going on. It is not rage. It is not uncontrolled anger pouring itself out on human beings. He does not slip up. He does not go too far. He is not out of control. But he is full of emotion. So what does this emotion, this anger, lead to? It does lead to destruction. Why? Here's what I'm going to try to prove to you today. Every time we see God inflicting destruction in the Old and the New Testament, it is for this, to reboot worship. To reboot worship. You ever rebooted your computer? You're so angry at it, it's not doing what you're supposed to do. What do you do? You just reboot it. (laughs) If you're old enough to have an original Nintendo, what do you do? You take it out, you blow on it, destruction, <laughs> get, get rid of some of that stuff, and you try to reboot it and plug it back in. We know about this rebooting. I think that explains God's destructive action in history. We're not letting him off the hook. He's doing it. He doesn't want to be left off the hook. He's saying, I'm doing this, but we have to understand why. We don't have to run from these passages. We don't have to hide. We don't have to throw our hands up. Hopefully today, you will have an answer to anybody that comes to you and says, well, how could you ever worship a God like that that did those things that we read about? Well, I think he was doing it out of loving kindness to reboot our worship. Why does our worship need to be rebooted? Because we were made to worship him alone. And when we worship him alone, in Christ alone, we are filled up to the full, okay? When we worship that which we were created to worship, it all connects, it all clicks, and we are refreshed, and we are nourished, and we are reminded of our beloved status, just like we read before. But the problem is, we don't do that. We pervert it. We worship something else, and that something else consumes us, and we consume it. 
And we are left dead and dying in our sin. So God's loving act of rebooting our worship is for our good and for His good and for the good of those around us. When done correctly, worship creates shalom. Everything fits together. It's what, I believe it was Michael Scott said, it's a win-win-win. Everybody wins. God wins. Everyone gets what they were designed to desire. God gets worship, which is what he is created to take. Well, he wasn't created. (laughs) What he is designed to take. He wasn't designed. What he is, is to receive worship. We were designed to desire the worship of God, and when we do it, we win. We get what we want, or what we should want. And when we worship God and not other things, everyone around us gets what they want, which is to not be treated like an object of worship because they can't handle it. Your wife can't handle it, your husband can't handle it, your best friend can't handle it, your boss can't handle it. Even Bezos can't handle it. It will kill him eventually. He's not made for that. I'm not made for that. You're not made for that. And so it's a win, win, win. But our worship has to be perfect. I mean, we just sang this song, No Longer Slaves. And this is the story of Israel. God rescues them through the Red Sea, miraculously, by God. They're no longer slaves in Egypt. They're free. They're children of God. He's rescued them. And immediately, what do they do? They start worshiping golden calves. What in the world is going on? This is us. We can sing this song on a Sunday. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to go home right after this. And we're going to worship something else. How can we sing that song and then go worship something else? We need our worship rebooted. Just like Israel. Just like God's people for all time. And it's his loving kindness, not his rage, that does that for us. Okay, turn with me now to another story that I think will help highlight this reality. Genesis chapter 11. So just a few pages over from where you just were. Genesis chapter 11. So as the story goes, the flood wipes out quite a bit. Noah remains. And God restarts humanity from this one family And he has three sons, and he goes, and there's actually quite a bit of unity, cooperation, and peace, and then something strange happens. God reboots it all again. So look at this with me. Chapter 11, verse 1, says this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. 
and they had and they had brick for stone and bitumen and mortar. Then they said, "Come, let us build ourselves a city." Well, that seems like a good idea. And a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, what is he going to say? Let's see what he says. Behold, they are one people. Amen, right? That's what we would say. And they all have one language. Fantastic. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Da-da-da. Fantastic. Wait. What's that? What? Wait. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. What? Wait a minute. That's a typo, right? So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord, that's Yahweh, confused the languages of all the earth, and from there Yahweh dispersed them over the face of all the earth. What? Isn't this our dream? One people? Unity, cooperation, peace, working together to build utopia? Why in God's name would he do this? Yahweh, what are you up to? Well, just before chapter 11, it's not quite chronological. In chapter 10, we have, you can look at it in your, in your text here, we have all the nations descended from Noah. So actually, the author here is giving us the finished state, which is many nations, many languages spread out. Why does he do this? Why does he give this account before he gives the account of the Tower of Babel? The answer is because chapter 11 and the account of the Tower of Babel is an explanation for why we have so many nations. So what's the explanation? The explanation of why we have so many nations is people wanted to worship something other than God. And God knew that wasn't for their best. Let me read you a quote here from an Old Testament scholar named K.A. Matthews. He says this, The Old Testament consistently portrays God as a universal God who rules the affairs of all nations. But this does not suggest that God is an an international deity worshipped by many names. The distinctive Sinai covenant Israel enjoyed was not shared by others, and it was the necessary vehicle by which Gentiles must recognize the Lord for salvation. Yahweh was not the God of Moab or Egypt, for instance. Only through God's revelation of himself to Israel would the world of nations have access to salvation. Thus, because of the unity and the sole rule of God. So here's what's going on. It is clear throughout Scripture that there is but one God, Yahweh, 
And he is the God, not just of the Israel people, the Hebrew people, he is the God of all nations. So when we read through the account of all the nations in chapter 10, God is saying, these are all of my people. These are all of my nations. And we got here because of something I did. I scattered the people. Why would he do that? If the, the worship of him is the way people come to salvation. Why wouldn't he keep them all together? Well, the Tower of Babel shows us something very important. We don't get worship. And the only way to fix that is to scatter us and to show us that we need God. Right worship comes when God personally reveals himself to one of these nations, teaches them through this one tribe, Israel, out of this one descendant of Noah, how to worship him rightly. And he scatters the nations so that he might show to the world, both at that time and historically, the difference between worshiping him well and worshiping any other god or any other thing. It's baffling to us, right? This is how much right worship is important to God. He is willing to scatter the people, create disunity, create war, so that he can show that right worship is the only way to fix the problem. It's fascinating. Now, I want to show you uh, something for you literary people in the room. Uh, Throw that up here. This is called an inclusio. And if you just read through the nine verses of the story of the Tower of Babel, this is how it's literarily constructed. I won't read through the whole thing, but I just want to show you something. Obviously, see A at the top, A at the bottom. B, 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 B. Right in the middle of all of those is the Lord came down. So when we're reading through the text, and it's saying the people are building this amazing city, they're working together, they've built a city that nobody else has seen, they've created uh, cooperation and unity like nobody's ever seen, their technology is like nothing we've ever seen, they're solving all of the problems uh, that no one has ever seen solved, God is saying, yet however high you reach, I still have to come down to see what you're working on. You might not see it, but that is literary irony that they build this giant tower to the heavens and God still has to come down. Now, it's not like God is way up somewhere in outer space, okay? That's, that's not what's happening. Down meaning down to our level down into our sphere of reality, which we think we are so great, God says you are but a pitiful expression of what you could be when you enter into the right worship of me and are part of my kingdom. He has to come all the way down just to see it. And it is pitiful, God says. And he's angry that they've thought they don't need him. I believe God here is again full of emotion. What are they trying to do? Again, they're trying to live without me. 
and again he has compassion on them, not destroying them utterly, but destroying the unity, cooperation, and this utopia that they've tried to build. But isn't that what God wants? Isn't what he wants at the end of the day unity, cooperation, and peace? The answer is no. And the answer is yes. He wants those things, but he wants lasting unity, lasting cooperation, lasting peace. And he knows that the only way to get that is to first prioritize the right worship of our creator and sustainer, the giver of all gifts and blessing, and the byproduct of that right worship will be lasting unity, cooperation, and peace. Do you see how counterintuitive this is to us in our day where we're solving so many problems, we're building our tower to Babel, and yet we refuse to worship the God of it all. God knows that the only way to get what we desire in our hearts truly is not to try to fix the problem ourselves, but it's to fix the problem that leads to all problems, which is false worship. So here's just like a quick application. Is it, are you having trouble with your roommate or um, your spouse or an in-law or you're about to go to Thanksgiving dinner and you're, you really don't want to see your family? Here is God's plan to create harmony amongst your marriage, your friendship, your family, your boss. Here's what he would say. Focus your actions toward the worship of Jesus. If you do that, I guarantee you the rest of your life will be rebooted for your good. So say you're married. You're having a rough go. What do you do? Counseling's not bad. It ain't gonna fix the problem. You know it's gonna fix the problem? It'll help. It won't fix it. It's for each of you individually to reorient your worship not towards each other but towards God. Your spouse will look a lot better to you in peripheral vision than if you're staring down the gun of the barrel at them every time they do something good or bad. That's how God wants to fix all lack of peace. First and foremost, fix your worship of Jesus. And then all these other things will do what they've always been intended to do. Counseling will now work like you never believe because you got your worship right. It was God's rebooting action that scattered the nations and confused the language. God did that. Because he knew if we don't get worship right, it doesn't matter how many bricks we burn, how tall of a tower we build, how unified we think that we are. It will eventually all fall apart. That's the God of the Old Testament who brings destructive action, confusing, paradoxical, seemingly antithetical to his love action out of love for not only us, but all the nations. This same principle can help you answer some of the hardest objections to Christianity People will say, why would I worship a God that's so cruel to the foreign people 
that when God sends Joshua and his army into Canaan to take the promised land, he says, root the people out. Don't leave them living. Why in the world would we worship a God like that? Isn't that God's rage coming down against the people of Canaan? No. It's his loving kindness to reboot what was despicable, false worship happening in that land. Things like child sacrifice. And God says, not in my world. And it's for his love of all peoples that he reboots worship in the land of Canaan, which will become the land that will model what it looks like to worship God rightly. But if you know the story, Israel gets it wrong. And so you would ask, why would I worship a God so cruel to his own people, the Israelites, that he lets foreign nations come in, conquer them, deport them, enslave them, treat them wickedly? Is that God's rage on the Israelites? No. It's his loving kindness to reboot their worship because it had become despicable. So the story goes, they're taken away and God brings back a remnant and they rebuild the temple and they begin worshiping again. They say, I don't know, I don't buy all this, Dave. This is why I don't read the Old Testament. It's too hard to explain these things away. I'm more of a Jesus guy. I like the love of Jesus. That's, that's what I'm all about. Jesus was a cool, nice guy. I'm just going to stick to the New Testament. I'm just going to read about Jesus. Here's the problem. When we get to the Gospels, what we see is that Jesus isn't just some lovable hippie. He may be a hippie, <laughs> but he is full of anger, righteous anger. So let me show you that. Turn with me to the Gospel of John. The Gospels recount the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's going to be in the back quarter of your Bible. The Gospel of John. If you've got one of these uh, Bibles, it is on page 577, at least in the blue cover. I'm not sure. Somewhere close to there in the other color, 577. And we are going to read an account of what I think is the same pattern that we see in the Old Testament. You ready? John chapter 2. Here's what we're going to look at. John chapter 2. Let's read first verses 13 through 22. 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. The Passover was a Jewish festival. Everybody from around would come to Jerusalem, the capital city, the center of worship, and they would remember the Exodus. They would remember when God saved them out of slavery, when they were no longer slaves, when they were adopted by God. Fantastic. When God passed over their houses and brought destruction on the houses of the Egyptians who enslaved them. So Jesus goes to Jerusalem to worship. And he gets there, verse 14. 
And he goes to the temple. And in the temple, Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. What is this? And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen And he poured out the coins from the money changers and he overturned their tables and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And in the the other gospels we have an account later in the ministry of Jesus where he does something similar, it appears. It may or may not be the same account, just written in a different order. He calls them, why have you, he says, why have you made my father's house, which is a house of prayer, a den of thieves? Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written in the Old Testament, zeal for your house will consume me. I think Jesus is angry. So the Jews said to him, that's the religious leaders, said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, when therefore he was raised from the dead. Sorry, when when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said these things, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So here is the scene. Jesus comes in and he is enra- he's enraged, he's emotionally full of anger, and he drives out the people, but then he's asked by the Jewish elites, who do you think you are to get to do this? And Jesus here says, this temple will be destroyed and God will raise it up in three days. What's going on here? His disciples get it after the resurrection, they're like, he was talking about his body. The Jews at the time had no idea. Jesus is talking about the reboot that must be done in his name. And he pictures it and he highlights it by driving out and cleansing the temple court of all the false worship that was happening. Jesus, God in the flesh, just like the God of the Old Testament, is full of anger when he sees false worship, but he's not driven by his anger. He's doing something so much more. And we'll get to that in a second. First, I want you to look at the beginning of chapter 2. The beginning of chapter 2. Here we have, in John's Gospel, the very first miracle that Jesus ever does. It's the wedding at Cana. Have you heard of this? Jesus goes to a wedding... And he turns water into wine, and it's the best wine that anyone has ever tasted. Why am I bringing this up? What I want you to remember is this. And John's doing this intentionally. He wants you to see that God's anger and Jesus' anger should always be understood in the context of his final ends. Judgment is never God's end game, but it's necessary to consummate his good intentions and plans. How does John chapter 2 show us this? 
Jesus goes to a party, and it's the best party that any, anyone's ever been to. And if you know the Old Testament, you know that the Messiah is always connected with a wedding banquet. And Jesus, in the book of Revelation, is said to invite people into the wedding banquet of the Lamb. Jesus is hosting and throwing a huge party that will last forever with the best wine you could ever imagine that never runs out. All people are invited, but Jesus is the host. He is the main attraction. It is him that you go to the party to worship. And in order to get to that place in history where we can all be partying with Jesus eternally, God has to reboot the entire system of worship. And if he doesn't, we don't get to party with Jesus. I don't know how how much clearer to say it than that. Jesus tried to tell his disciples the Last Supper, which we perform every week, we practice it and remember it, the night before he was taken um, and betrayed and crucified, Jesus instituted this and he said, this is my body broken for you, this is the cup, this is... uh, For the forgiveness of sin, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you remember my death until I come again and eat with you. And what is going to happen when he comes again and eats with you? It's his party with wine that never runs out. It's a wedding feast. It's fantastic. All the saints gathered together, worshiping and praising all that God is and all that God has done in Christ Jesus. That's the end of it all. But to get there, it has to be rebooted. The entire system of worship is corrupt. And God loves us so much that he's not just going to let us keep going down this path that leads to destruction and not the Jesus party. So you must picture Jesus standing there. He's cl- you gotta, you got to get into the text, you guys. Jesus, close your eyes if you need to. Jesus standing there. He's got his whip. He's clearing out people who are trying to make money off of God. Get out of my father's house. You're not welcome in the party. He's getting rid of these sacrificial animals. Get out of here. We don't need those anymore. Why not? He's about to give himself as the sacrifice. So picture him standing there. And everybody has been cast out because when Jesus gets angry, you know, just imagine what that's like. And he's got his Indiana Jones whip, and it's wild. And he's flinging money everywhere. And he's just standing there by himself. Maybe there's a dove flapping by, and he's standing there by himself. And finally, for a moment, it's almost eerily silent. He says, this is a little bit closer to what it was always meant to be. But of course he knew in that moment that this wouldn't be the last time he came to a Passover in Jerusalem course he knew that when he left they would refill the temple and start making money off of God and keep worshiping religion instead of Yahweh and he knew that the next time that he had to come the next time he would return to Jerusalem that God the Father would again reboot worship 
by pouring out his destructive power into the world. And what he may or may not have known is that that power of destruction would be poured out on himself on the cross. And again, after he hung there on the cross and God poured out his destruction on him, not just to remove some money changers, but to remove sin from the world, it again would be eerily silent. God was rebooting all worship. For three days it was silent. And the world stood still until Jesus walked out of the tomb and worship was changed forever. And now we don't go to the temple. Now, Jesus says, we worship God in spirit and in truth. We are the temples. Literally, worship has been rebooted and it's to a whole new operating system that nobody could have ever planned. And in Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Jewish carpenter, we now turn our gaze, we give our praise, we throw out all of our goods and money and affection, we give it all to him, and when we give it to him, we have peace with God, with one another, and we have it everlasting. The Father poured out his destruction. He poured out his wrath, not on us, but on his Son who took on humanity. And in his humanity, the reboot was final. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, We're sorry that we worship other things in this life besides you and your son whom you gave to us as a sacrifice. We, we, it's so hard for us to not worship other things. Give us strength, give us your spirit so that we might see things as they are, that they've been rebooted, that we have now finally a chance at lasting peace with you first and with each other second. If we turn away from false worship to right worship in your son Jesus Christ, our lamb, our sacrifice. Pray now for my friends, God, if they are worshiping something else besides you, that they would turn from it and worship you. God, we see in the Tower of Babel, we see in our own lives that our desire for autonomy is a cancer on your kingdom that you will remove. God, heal us of our autonomous spirit who wants to do it on our own, without you, 
so that we might be praised instead of you. God, help us turn and repent from that way of living and thinking and being and turn to you, giving you the glory, giving you the praise, trusting in your reboot of the system in your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. It's in his name that we lift up and magnify. It's in his name that we trust eternally for our salvation and for our good and for the hope of this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.